Let me tell you about a new podcast that I've been listening to and I love. It's called Serial Killers. It takes a psychological approach with the goal of providing a rare glimpse into the mind, the methods, the madness of some of the most notorious serial killers. And this gives us a better understanding of their psychological profile. They delve deep into the lives and the stories and the backstories of these serial killers. You can listen now on your favorite podcast directory or by visiting parcast.com slash serial. And that's spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com slash serial. Because of our friends at Blue Apron and at Bloom That, we can bring you this show. You can help your favorite podcast stay free to download and creating quality content, producing more content, by completing a short anonymous survey, it doesn't take any more than five minutes. You just go to podcast.study to complete the survey. It would be a huge favor for Allie and I if you guys could go out there and fill that out. It's podcast.study. Thank you so much. everyone and welcome to another episode of Insight. Ali here and joining me is Charlie. How are you tonight? I'm good. How are you? It's the last of birthday season here. My daughter turns five this week, which is crazy. We had a birthday party for her this past weekend and you know what? A bunch of five-year-old girls are really, really freaking loud. One of my kids has a birthday this month as well, but he's turning 18 and his friend groups have gotten smaller and they just want to like not be in my house. So their parties are very quiet. <laughs> See, I need some of that. Yeah, they like go to the movies and do stuff like that now. See, I just have kids that run around screaming. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> back in January, which feels like yesterday, by the way, but way back then we had a giveaway where we asked everyone to fill out a quick survey and in exchange we drew a winner who got to choose an episode topic. Our January winner was Jessica M, so congrats Jessica, and she chose the unsolved murder of high school student Rhonda Sue Coleman in 1990. Before we start talking about Rhonda, I just want to mention that we are going to have a March giveaway as well. The details will be on our Facebook page and I will do my best to get it on the website as well. And it's actually going to be called March Giving. And our giveaway is going to be if you donate five or more dollars to any domestic violence or child abuse prevention nonprofit and send us a screenshot of the receipt, we'll enter you into the drawing. And we will be giving away a blue apron code. And then the winner, I will also donate $50 of my own money to whatever charity you had picked. The details, like I said, will be on our Facebook page and our website. Let's jump in to our January giveaway topic suggestion, which was Rhonda Sue Coleman. On January 18, 1972, Rhonda Sue Coleman was born in Hazelhurst, Georgia, to Milton and Gail Coleman, and she was their only child. And Hazelhurst is a very small town. Rhonda's senior picture is the most common image you'll see online in articles about her. Her makeup and hair are perfect, but nobody who knew her would characterize her as a girly girl. She was the kid climbing trees and playing in the mud. She was in the FFA, and this used to stand for Future Farmers of America, though they changed it to just be FFA since the program expanded to include not not only preparation for production-based agriculture, but also teachers and scientists and business people focused on the plant and animal sciences. How do I know all this? It's because I was in the FFA in high school. I worked in a greenhouse, working on hydroponics, and I also did a lot of public speaking, mostly on conservation issues. You don't need my resume, but you know, I took a more urban approach to the FFA and Rhonda, however, won many awards in livestock competitions. And Rhonda was also a member of the Y Club, which is a leadership-based club for middle and high schoolers sponsored by the YMCA. Rhonda and I had this in common as well, <laughs> though again, you don't need my resume. And she worked at the local Piggly Wiggly, which is a grocery store in the South, as a cashier. She hasn't been described as wild in any way, 
But she also wasn't stuck at home in front of the TV on a Friday night doing her homework either. I think one of the things that makes this case so alarming is how very normal Rhonda was, how typical her life was. She went to school, she went to work, she went to church, and she was a typical active teenager with friends. She was on the cusp of adulthood. She was about to go out and make a place for herself in the world. Her goal was to become a pediatric nurse, and she had plans to attend Georgia Southern University in the fall. Rhonda was in her senior year of high school, and the year was winding up. On the evening of Thursday, May 17 of 1990, Rhonda met with some classmates to work on some of the senior activities they had coming up for the end of school year. They were only like two weeks away from graduation, and from what I understand, they were painting a banner that evening specifically. She gave a friend a ride, dropping that friend off at a store in Hazelhurst. Rhonda left and headed for home. And it was about 11 o'clock at night by this point. This is the last time she was reported having been seen. When Rhonda didn't come home, understandably her parents were going to be worried. I think I would have been a wreck myself. So the search began that night. And honestly, I think it would be hard to find a search that had been organised quicker. Only 90 minutes passed between when Rhonda left school and when her parents started the search. When they found Rhonda's car, it was on the side of the Bell Telephone Road, which is a road she would have been travelling on to get home. Now, Bell Telephone Road runs south of the city centre, so even the parts of it that had houses and cross streets, they aren't likely to have a lot of passerbys at 11 o'clock at night. Now, while the location of the car wasn't odd, what was odd is that the lights of the car were still on and the motor was still running. The driver's side door was open and Rhonda's purse was still in the car. But Rhonda herself was nowhere to be seen. This whole situation was alarming from the get-go. It's not like she broke down and was trying to walk home. And it's not like she decided to get into someone else's car on her own volition. Because if she did either of these things, she would have turned the car off, grabbed her purse and shut the car door. Whatever the reason she got out of her car, whether it be because of force, someone pulling her out, or maybe using a weapon to threaten her out of her car, or possibly was it someone she knew and she thought she was only getting out of the car for a quick chat with them, which is why she left everything the way she did. Some people believe that she may have stopped to help someone on the side of the road, And it's very possible she did, but her parents insist it would have had to have been someone she knew. Because we're talking about the middle of the night here. She wouldn't have pulled over that late at night for a stranger. But we are talking about Hazelhurst here, which is only a small town and a close-knit community where everyone knows everyone. So it doesn't really narrow things down a whole lot. I think it could be argued that Maybe she would have pulled over for a police officer or maybe someone imitating a police officer. We can't rule that out because we simply don't know. But no one suspects police involvement as far as I can tell. Imposters are not unheard of. There was one arrested a few months ago here in Kansas City and another spotted just a month ago in a neighboring city. So it's possible that she pulled over for that reason. But I do agree that she was most likely forced out of the car. Rhonda had grown up in Hazelhurst her whole life. In 1990, it had about 4,200 people in the town. So in talking with Jessica, who suggested this topic, I have the impression that it was small in both size and in feel. Everyone overlaps with everyone else and knows everyone else. The school district where Rhonda attended her whole life is also small. There were only two elementary schools, one middle school and one high school. So not only does everyone know everyone, they likely went to school with them most of their lives. And I think that's part of why this search got underway very quickly. This wasn't a girl in town. This was Rhonda. This was the Coleman's daughter. People knew her, they knew the family, and they jumped in to help. But it would be three more days before Rhonda was found. Her body was found in the woods about 20 miles away, and she was found by a hunter who was walking through the area. Rhonda was found fully dressed and partially burned. The heat required to destroy human remains by fire is hard to achieve 
in the open like that. So while the killer attempted to conceal the body this way, it's no surprise he failed. It also means he probably didn't know this much about this disposal method, which might make you think not as criminally sophisticated as, say, a serial killer. Rhonda did not appear to have been sexually assaulted. While some reports say that there was no cause of death determined, that's not entirely true. No cause of death was released. The cause of death or the circumstances of death are rather specific and the police believe that this could be used to confirm or to rule out any confessions or reports that come in. So if someone comes into the police and says, I heard Joe in a bar saying that he shot Rhonda, they can rule it in or out right away. If all the information is in the papers, they can't do that. So this information is being held back. Now, the investigation was extensive. There isn't anything public, well, at least what I could find, and I know you look too, right, Charlie? Absolutely. It is reported her case file has grown to hundreds and hundreds of pages long in the nearly 27 years since she's been gone. I suspect in the years that have passed since Rhonda went missing, additional testing has been done as technology has improved. While the local police investigated for the first eight months and they interviewed over 100 people, the GBI took over the case in January of 1991. Now, there are no named stalkers in this case. Rhonda had no enemies. She would stand up for her friends and she spoke her mind, but despite that, she wasn't someone who attracted a lot of negative attention. Her parents and friends were not aware of her getting any threats They didn't know of anyone making her feel particularly uncomfortable and they didn't know of anyone stalking her. There was literally nothing. That doesn't mean that the family doesn't have a suspect. They won't name him publicly, though they probably would if the law would let them, but we do have slander laws here. I think 100% they would name him. And of course, because we do have slander laws, we're not going to name him either. They and many people in the town are 100% sure this person did it. He lives and works in the surrounding area, though he moved out of the town, and likely because of all this suspicion towards him. He was a few years older than Rhonda at the time, and I imagine they have to have a strong reason to think it was him, and I don't know what that reason is. The family and friends of Rhonda still post flyers about her in the area in the hopes that some pressure will crack Either his silence, the murderer's silence if it's not him, or maybe someone who knows what happened, who was told what happened, who helped in some way, will speak up. There is a rumor online that the son of a member of law enforcement may have been involved, but that does not seem to be the prevailing theory of the family, who would know more details than the average person. And honestly, based on the statements of law enforcement and the number of interviews I've read where they bring up Rhonda as the case that still haunts them, I have a hard time believing that they're, they they have some kind of cover-up going on. I honestly think they're haunted by it because they think they know who did it and they were never able to prove it. I can't imagine anything that would be more frustrating than that, that you know who has taken someone's life or abducted someone and you can't do anything about it and for so many years this happened in 1990 yeah we're going to talk a quick minute about Jeanette Carter because she is one of the only other unsolved murders in the Hazelhurst area Jeanette was a 34 year old woman who was killed three months before Rhonda she was found in a ditch beside a dirt road bludgeoned to death the murder weapon a pipe was found the next day It was across the street and it had been thrown into the woods a bit. So it wasn't until they did a thorough search of the area the next day that they found it. Now, aside from proximity and location and being three months between the murders, there is an odd coincidence between these cases. Jeanette and Rhonda both drove Chevy Cavaliers that were found pulled over and with the driver's door open. And it's also believed that Jeanette was killed very late at night, like Rhonda. She wasn't transported to a secondary location. She was just dragged off to the side of the road where a man walking his dog the next morning had found her. But there are some notable differences, though. For one, the obvious, Jeanette was in her mid-30s and Rhonda was only 18. 
And then there was also a decent suspect in Jeanette's case because she had recently broke up with her boyfriend. The police appear that they did learn from investigating Jeanette's death, though. In that case, a lot of the details were released to the public and it did compromise the information coming in. I think that contributed to why they decided to not release the cause of death on Rhonda. I know we have seen some cold cases recently solved. The Claremont murders from Perth in the mid-90s have an arrest. The Bearbrook murders, the oldest being from the mid-80s, have an arrest. How do you feel, Allie, at this point about the solvability of the Rhonda Sue Coleman case? I hope, I really do hope that this could be solved one day for Rhonda and her family and friends. And as you said, with the increasing number of cold cases that have been solved in the last 12 months, I mean, why not? I think, though, at this stage, it really relies on someone having a conscience, growing a pair and admitting to what they know. I agree. I think this case will likely, if it's solved, will be solved through a confession, either of the murderer, of someone who he told the information to, or someone who may have helped him dispose of Rhonda's body. I think one of the saddest thing is, and there is a lot of sad to this case, but when we are researching a case, a little digging and maybe changing what you're exactly searching for you can genuinely find a decent amount of information for the majority of cases. But here, it is so sad that Rhonda seems almost forgotten. There is barely any news articles out there. And when I think about all the life she would have lived, she would have finished school, went to college, travelled, worked, most likely met the person of her dreams and then had children – She was robbed of all of that by this horrible excuse of a human who got to live their life without any consequences. Hopefully that won't be much longer and there will be a crack in this case and there'll be some justice for Rhonda and her family. I really hope so. I just want to take another quick minute to talk about that new podcast I told you about in the beginning of the show, Serial Killers. Each episode tries to answer the how and the why people can commit these depraved and frankly unjustifiable acts. They take an investigative approach into the psyche of these serial killers. They analyze evidence, share the real confessions, and for the recent cases, you'll actually hear the audio from the serial killers themselves. They use a team of skilled true crime researchers that can dig up some of these lesser known facts, and then they analyze the story with all of these pieces. Now, Serial Killers is different. They use a production team, including screenwriters and voice actors and sound designers, and that helps keep the show entertaining. You can check out episodes covering H.H. Holmes, one of the first ever Serial Killers, or Alien Warnos is what I personally recommend you listen to. It's fascinating. New episodes come out weekly on Mondays. You can expect Ted Bundy, The Zodiac Killer, and many more. Visit iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast directory, whatever you use, search for Serial Killers. Again, that's Serial Killers. Or you could just visit parcast.com slash serial to start listening now. P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com slash serial to listen now. I don't know what it is, but cases where people disappear and their car is found undamaged, just abandoned, those cases in particular are very unsettling to me. We talked about Stephen Coacher a while back as well, but one case in particular that has always stuck with me is the disappearance of Brendan Swanson. Brendan Victor Swanson was born on January 30, 1989 to Brendan and Annette Swanson in Spencer, Ohio. Brendan had a younger sister, Jameen, who was only 17 months younger than him. And they grew up like normal siblings. She would follow him around, he would tease her, But after all was said and done, they were each other's best friends. Brendan lived at home with his parents and his sister in Marshall, Minnesota. He was studying wind turbine at the Minnesota West Community and Technical College in Canberra. And he had a part-time job to help pay for college at the local Hy-Vee food store. And what he was studying, he was extremely passionate about. He was a firm believer in natural renewable energy and one of his favourite things to do was to climb wind towers. 
And because of this, he was transferring into a program with the Iowa West Community College in Council Buffs, which started in August of 2008. And once he finished there, he could do a science degree at university, all of which his family said he was extremely excited about. All of this brings us to May 14, 2008. This day was the last day of classes for Brendan, and he decided he wanted to celebrate the end of school for summer and go out with his friends to celebrate. I mean, that's pretty normal. He's 19, so of course he wanted to do that, especially since he was transferring colleges and wouldn't see all of these friends as often as he had been. That night was described by Brendan's friends as pretty low-key. Later in the evening, Brendan said goodbye to one of his classmates and had a shot of whiskey. This is important to know since while he was driving, his blood alcohol level would have been still rising, but we can talk about that a bit later. Brandon was on his way back home from hanging out with his friends to Marshall when he was involved in a car accident. And you'll read accounts that he crashed into a ditch or drove into a ditch. Brandon was on a gravel road, not the main highway where he normally would have been to head home. The way the Lincoln County Sheriff described it, the ditch on the side of the road wasn't big. There was, but there was a sharp enough incline that the car got, quote, hung up with the wheels too high off the ground to get any traction. So with this phrasing, I picture either the front of the car in the ditch with the rear tires in the air or the passenger side of the car in the ditch just kind of at an angle with one of the rear tires up. That's how I picture it, the sort of sideways with the passenger side down. And I only really mention this to kind of rein in the picture you may have, you may be painting in your head of a car careened into a ditch. His mom said in an interview there was no damage to the car at all, and Brandon said he wasn't hurt. So this was not a major accident. And for some reason, when I was researching this case, I kept getting the impression this was a big ditch and his car was stuck, and it actually doesn't sound like it was that catastrophic. It was just really poor positioning of his car. His mom also mentioned in that same interview that the car was muddy from being on a gravel road. So in thinking about the road being muddy enough to get the car muddy, but there was no damage to the car itself, I have to wonder if he didn't more slide off the road than crash or drive into the ditch. He was really close to a field access road. He may have thought that was actually a through road that he could turn down if he was misjudging his distance, he was it was a little more slick than he had expected. He could have slid through the turn, turned a little early, and slid into the ditch. Again, this is all just to kind of paint that picture in your head more accurately. It's important because Brandon's later actions seem odd. And you may wonder if he hit his head when the car went into the ditch. I think that would have been likely had he crashed into the ditch, but not so much if he slid in at a low rate of speed. And that's what it appears to me actually happened. Okay, so Brandon gets out and he has a look at the car, realizes he's stuck. And as you said, Charlie, he wasn't able to push his car back out onto the road. He calls some of his friends. He can't get through. So he calls his parents for help on his cell phone. And by this stage, it's quarter past one in the morning. He tells them what happened and that he's not injured. Brendan believes he's just outside the town of Lind, which is about a 10-minute drive from where he lives. Brian and Annette, his parents, they go out to get Brendan, but they can't find him from his directions. And something important of note, Brendan stays on the phone with his parents this whole time. But Brian would tell Brendan that he is flashing his lights while driving towards him so Brendan can see the car. And Brendan would report back that he couldn't see the lights. And then Brendan would do the same. He would flash his car lights and his parents would report back that they couldn't see the lights either. And so on and so on. And this went on for some time, about roughly an hour. So it's a little after quarter past two, and obviously both sides are getting increasingly frustrated. I read at one point, Brendan's mum gets so mad at him, so Brendan hangs up on her, and then she calls him back and apologises, and the back and forth begins again. So about after an hour, Brendan tells them he can see the lights of the nearby town of Lind. 
He knows it's Lind because that's where a friend of his lives. So he tells his parents that he is tired of waiting and he's just going to walk towards that town. So Brian takes Annette home and goes back out to get him. And he calls Brendan back and he stays on the phone while his son is walking towards the town. Before we go any further, I think we should pause here for a PSA. Charlie and I have a preoccupation in keeping all of our friends safe out there. Don't wear two earbuds in your ears when you go out walking or jogging. Stay in groups of four. And if you are by yourself in an isolated area and you unfortunately happen to break down, please stay with your car. For one, it makes it easier for you to be found because you are in a central place. And a car is a heck of a lot easier to spot than a person. And for two, a car protects you somewhat from the elements. So please stay with your car. Back to our story. Shortly after 3am, we're about 47 minutes into this call. And Brandon told his dad to go ahead and pick him up at an empty parking lot of a nightclub in Lind, which was a popular meeting spot in the town. As Brandon is walking and his dad is trying to get to where their meeting spot, Brandon said, oh, sh-, and his father thought he heard a foot slipping and then the call ended abruptly. So I imagine when his parents were first out trying to meet up with him and they can't find him, they're frustrated. I mean, it's after 2 a.m. I tell my teens, call me anytime, always and forever. I will come and get you. That doesn't mean I'm not going to be annoyed at 2 a.m. trying to find my kid and him giving me crappy directions. But then the longer this call goes on, it surely turned to concern. And then finally, this exclamation and the phone going dead. I mean, that's when I think full-on fear probably hit his parents, his dad specifically, who was on the phone with him at the time. It's confusing that Brandon was so sure he was near Lind, a town near where his home was, where he lived almost his entire life. But he was 20 to 25 miles away from Lind. I get that he might have been tired and he was traveling east but thought he was going south or something like that, got turned around on the roads. He was trying. He was not on the highway. Maybe he didn't know those country roads as well as he thought. But then he got out of the car and he was so sure where he was that he started walking in the, in the unlit country fields, in the woods, and he wasn't even near there. Like I said... You may be thinking, maybe he hit his head, he was disoriented, maybe he was intoxicated and out of it, but his dad said he sounded perfectly fine on the call, totally with it. And I would imagine if he had hit his head and crashed, wouldn't the airbags have gotten have gone off? You know, I'm not entirely sure what car he had, like the year, and if it had airbags or not. Okay. I actually don't have all those details, but I... If he hit his head, I would have thought there'd be also damage to the car from whatever he hit that made him jar that he hit his head. And that didn't happen. The car didn't hit anything. That makes sense. Brian obviously tries a bunch of times to call him back, something like five or six times, even just thinking he dropped his phone and it'll light up when I call him and he'll be able to find it. But Brandon never answered. Brian stayed out looking for him until 6.30 in the morning and... He couldn't find Brandon, he couldn't find his car, so Brian went ahead and reported Brandon missing to the police. So we are at May 15 now. The authorities use the pings from the cell phone records to locate Brandon's car, and they find it one and a half miles north of the Lyon-Lincoln County line off Highway 68 west of Taunton, Minnesota. There is no sign of Brandon at the scene. The authorities conducted several widespread searches of the area, but there was still no sign of Brandon. And it would have been because I did have a look at Google Maps and there is just empty land for as far as the eye can see. And since Brandon went missing, there have been something like 500 volunteers who have spent a total of four months covering 100 square miles in the process, as well as using over 30 dog handlers from nine different states. So it has been an extensive search over the years, but besides Brendan's car, nothing has ever been found. So let's go back to Brendan's car. It wasn't anywhere near the place Brendan said it was. The location he told his parents was 20 miles away from where it was found. 
The most obvious reason would be that he had just gotten confused about where he was. Although his friends do report later to police that Brendan had been drinking alcohol that evening, but investigators do not believe he was drunk or otherwise impaired when he disappeared. His parents also report that Brendan didn't sound intoxicated on the phone. But as we like to do, we'll talk about that in a little bit. The investigators literally have said they have no solid leads or theories on what happened to Brendan, which is kind of a bold statement, but very true. There is absolutely no trace of him. I know we say this every single time, but with Brendan and Stephen Kocher and William Tyrrell, I could literally go on and on. And if you listen to the Vanish podcast, you know what I'm talking about. But how on earth can all of these real flesh and blood people just disappear into thin air with no trace? It is really baffling to me and slightly scary, to be honest. It just astounds me that with all the forensic advances that we have now, how can someone just disappear like that? So on to theories. The first theory is that Brendan fell into Yellow Medicine River. This was a popular theory with the police at the time Brendan disappeared, as they believed that Brendan fell into the Yellow Medicine River while he was walking in the dark. He didn't know the land or the area because, remember, he was nowhere near where he thought he was. It is very possible he slipped and fell into that river. And something worth of note, this river does flow fast and this time of year it can be up to 15 feet deep in some places. But the other side of the coin is there have been numerous searches of that river, but it hasn't produced a body or any evidence of Brandon, so there's nothing really to support this theory. Now, we do know that search dogs did pick up Brandon's scent near the Yellow Medicine River, but there is also another creek that seems to intersect with this river at some point, and that's Mud Creek. Is it possible that he fell into the river and then ended up in Mud Creek? possibly getting pinned under some debris or stuck in a crevice. Look, I don't know if Mud Creek was ever searched, but it is a possibility. Definitely Mud Creek, but I also think Yellow Medicine River during the dry season dries out pretty well. Not completely. I mean, Mud Creek probably would be a completely dry bed. Even in the low water, they haven't been able to find something. And so you think if he was pinned under in branches or debris, they would have at least found him when the river went down. Unless, of course, a wild animal then had taken. But even then, there would be clothes, there'd be something left. Right. His car is all that was left. Yeah. The next theory is the one that I think, from my reading, is probably the most accepted one currently. And the one I It's at least the one I see most often. And that's that Brandon succumbed to hypothermia. And he was never found because he hid in either an abandoned structure or under some old farm equipment that was out of use. Possibly he was in a field that was later cut for hay, but his remains weren't seen. Police found no blood or beer cans in his car, but they did find a pipe that could be used for drugs. In... The only article I found that referenced this pipe, they hadn't yet tested it for drugs. Like I said, it's the only article I could find about it, so I don't have a follow-up of any results of any tests. The pipe may not have been Brandon's, because like any 19-year-old with a car, he likely gave his friends rides. We don't really know much about this. And I mean, there's a huge difference if it was a drug pipe that had crack in it versus some pot. So... You know, I don't know. We're just putting it in here because we found it, not because we can make sense of it. I've seen it mentioned in multiple places how Brandon was legally blind in his left eye. And I read in a few places that it was congenital blindness. Legally blind is an actual legal disability status here, and it actually requires a certain level of blindness in both eyes. So I don't know what they mean by saying he's legally blind in one eye because that's impossible. But if I stop being pedantic about it, (laughs) I'm guessing that they mean his left eye was worse than 2200, even with his glasses, because that's generally part of the legal definition of legally blind. And being congenital, he spent his entire life compensating. So this wouldn't be as bad as if you or I were out in the woods 
with a sudden vision impairment in one eye. But that isn't to say that it was easy for him, particularly if he was disoriented. So it would have been quite dark. I looked it up. It was not a full moon. He was walking around in fields and thick wooded areas. He wouldn't have been able to see well, even if his vision was terrific. And his depth perception with his low vision in one eye, depth perception issues because of the darkness. All this to say, there's a really solid chance he slipped and fell into a river or Mud Creek, or I think I saw there was a retention pond on the Google map. Sure, maybe he was swept away by the river current, but I don't know about that because he probably could have gotten out of the water. We talked about this in our Manchester Canal Pusher episode, and he could have been fighting this hypothermia rather quickly between the water and the alcohol. Even if he didn't have enough to drink to be legally too drunk to drive, it could have still affected his body temperature. And like we said in previous episodes, even mild hypothermia causes mental confusion. So now let's add mental confusion to the sight issues and the darkness and the confusion over where he was. And I I don't think it's that hard to imagine him wandering and getting even more lost. I think his cell phone was toast and whatever caused him to curse and dropped the call with his parents. So maybe he lost his footing and dropped the phone into the water. Uh, Maybe he lost his footing and dropped the phone onto a rock and it broke. I don't know. But it's safe to say that he's wandering around, possibly wet, almost certainly cold at some point, even if he wasn't wet, and he didn't have access to calling for help. And was he impaired? As I said earlier, he hung out with his friends and he was drinking. Is it possible that even though he felt fine to drive when he left the party, could he have then gotten progressively more drunk as his blood level rose? That could have caused him to take the wrong turn and then run off the road. And then when he called his parents, he was somewhere completely different to where he thought he was. And then he thinks he's heading towards the direction of his friend's place, but in fact he wasn't. Now, as I said before, the police don't believe whatever happened to him happened because he was drunk. And I imagine his parents would know him well enough to be able to tell when they're on the phone with him for an hour whether or not he was drunk. I really don't believe that a couple of shots or whatever Brendan had at the party was the reason he had the accident or contributed to his disappearance. Honestly, I think it's more likely he tried to take a shortcut. Again, if you look at Google Maps, there is a lot of gravel side streets that go off the main highway. Maybe he was driving on them to avoid the police because he didn't want to risk being over the limit and then getting a DUI. And he simply wasn't paying enough attention and then he missed a turn or took a wrong turn, which meant he wasn't where he thought he was. The next theory that we always explore is the running away and starting a new life theory. And I try not to be flat out dismissive of theories, but this one doesn't make a lot of sense and there's not anything to support it. So we're going to dismiss it. So we're just going to dismiss it, yes, (laughs) as much as I hate to. He didn't have any of the risk factors we would see. He was close to his parents. He worked hard in school. He had the next step toward his future career plan. He was excited about it. He had a stable job. There were no signs that he wanted to run away from anything. Like we've seen in other cases where somebody may be having a mental breakdown or something. There were no signs of any of that. But the main thing for me that says he didn't do this is if he wanted to run away and start a new life, why did he call his parents to come get him? So, of course, he sent them to the wrong place, but why alert them at all that he was going missing immediately? He could have gotten a head start and just never contacted them again. Exactly. If he was going to stage an accident and book it out of there, calling his parents that day, that makes no sense. And, of course, there are zero sightings of him, no use of his name, his social security number. In 2008, living without a digital footprint was already pretty impossible. Because, I mean, we're talking after September 11th terrorist attacks. Everything here got harder. Any Getting any type of ID or passport, even getting on a plane was so much harder. So how is he living under the radar completely with no preparation and no resources? 
I just don't think this one really fits. And finally, we have the theory that Brendan was either hit by a car or picked up by an apparently helpful stranger who turned out to be a less helpful stranger and instead a killer. Both of these theories do have some major flaws as well for me. If Brendan had the time to register danger approaching, swear and then hang up the phone, surely he would also have the time to get out of the way of an oncoming vehicle. And if Brendan was picked up by our killer friend, surely he would tell his dad he was being picked up instead of swearing and hanging up. Actually, that's a good point. If someone was giving him a lift, why would he swear at all? Also, the opportunistic killer would be very opportunistic to be literally in the middle of nowhere at two in the morning and find somebody. Also, where this theory kind of falls down for me was the fact that he wasn't on the road anymore. He was literally walking cross country and he told his dad that he wasn't near the road. Although Brendan is listed on VICAP, which is the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program, so it is very possible that law enforcement knows something they just haven't released to the public. So let's go backwards to Brendan's last phone conversation with his dad. A huge question for me that would probably be the answer to almost everything in this case is why the phone call was ended. To me, if Brendan was faced with a dangerous situation, it seems to me it would be unlikely for Brendan to simply hang up the phone. Wouldn't it be more likely if he found himself in imminent danger, he would drop the phone and then his parents would hear what was going on, like a struggle, gurgling of a river or a car slamming on its brakes. But that didn't happen. Brendan or someone ended the phone call. Why? And the sound Brendan's dad did hear, which he thought was a foot slipping, could that also have been a car stopping the tyres on a gravel road? I've seen it reported that he said this expletive, and then I've seen it that he yelled it. I think how he said it would really matter here, because he had been on the phone with his parents for a while, he had been out all night, maybe he didn't have a car charger in his car, maybe his phone was dying... And he said that because it was beeping in his ear and he knew it was going to turn off soon. And then it turned off. But if he yelled it, then that means something startled him. I think that makes sense because his father apparently tried to call him back. It would be make sense that if he'd run out of batteries, it would go straight to voicemail. But we don't know that. I think it's an important point because if they did try to call back and it continued to ring, well, that's a whole different story. Also, it would have left some pings that the police would have been able to trace. If it was still on, it would have left the pings. One of the things that is interesting, my husband used to work for a cell phone company, is that when you hear it start ringing, that doesn't necessarily mean it's ringing on their side because sometimes it rings so that you know you're connected, but if it can't find that phone, it might not automatically go to voicemail. And I don't know how many cell phone towers were out there. So it is possible it was off and it still rung on his dad's side. So that's a possibility too. I, like I said, we, we just don't know. That makes sense because I did read that the investigators did call Brendan's cell phone as part of their search and it did ring for the first day and a half. And then after then the calls went straight to voicemail. But as you just said, maybe that was just the phone trying to connect. Right. Yeah. They, they put that ring in there for the caller's I don't know, comfort level, because that's how phones used to work when we had landlines. If it stayed ringing for a day and a half, that also sounds like maybe it was still alive. Because I was thinking if the cell phone was dropped into the water and it's not a waterproof cell phone, which let's face it, it's 2008 and Brendan was a college student. So he most likely had a basic mobile that wasn't waterproof, didn't have any internet and the like like that. And I imagine it would have been damaged very quickly and then the, the calls go straight to voicemail. But as you said, again, it could have just been the connection time, not it trying to ring. Right. It feels like the answer is in what happened with his cell phone and we just don't know. I mean, if his cell phone dropped into the water, that could wash away and never be seen again and be buried somewhere very quickly. I just really think if they are able to find that cell phone... I think it's a critical step in finding out what happened to Brendan. I agree. 
but I'm really surprised they haven't found it. I know that cell phone pings only work within a certain limited area of, I think it's something like three to five miles. So I'm really surprised they haven't found it. Yeah, since they were really searching for so long in a big area. Exactly. There was some good that came out of all of this. A year after Brandon went missing in May of 2009, the Minnesota governor signed Brandon's Law, named after Brandon Swanson. This law expanded the state's existing law on dealing with missing children to include adults under the age of 21, as well as any adult of any age who goes missing under suspicious circumstances. It means that the report has to be taken immediately. And the investigation has to begin immediately. Delaying even a basic preliminary investigation for someone simply because they're an adult is no longer allowed in Minnesota. It also requires law enforcement to take identifying information such as dental records and DNA samples of any, anyone who's missing for more than 30 days. Another thing that it did was spell out who had jurisdiction in the case. The agency that took the initial missing persons report has lead. And this was very important because it caused an issue in Brandon's case. His car was found where three counties meet. But thinking he was near Lind this whole time, 20, 25 miles away, his parents reported him missing to the Lind Police Department. Not knowing who's supposed to call the shots can really delay things. And when the Swansons initially called to report their son missing before his car was found, they were told it's not unusual for a young man to stay out all night when he finished his classes for the semester. They later heard investigators talk at a press conference about how Brandon was an adult and he had every right to disappear without telling his parents where he was going. And that's true. But there was pretty clear evidence that Brandon did not want to go missing voluntarily because he called his parents for help. This law requires law enforcement to act if there are those signs that the person went missing under dangerous circumstances. When someone like Brandon, who was out in 39 degree weather overnight, could have been wet, you know, his parents believed he was in distress, he lost his cell phone, he yelled an expletive, they're delaying this investigation. And... When he's out there in the cold like that, that's a serious thing. How much a delay impacted Brandon's case, we may never know. But the weight of that question was enough that it pushed his parents to get this bill through both state houses and to the governor's desk within a year of Brandon going missing. His mom said that the signing of the bill was bittersweet. She knew it would help others, but it wasn't there in time for Brandon. So what do you think the solvability of this case is, Charlie? I think this one is highly solvable. I think he's in that wooded, fielded area. And that they haven't found him surprises me, but I don't think that means they can't find him. I think they just need to widen their search, maybe. I don't know. But I think he's findable in that area. I think in my mind, he is most likely deceased, but... That's what missing people are all about. We really have no idea. We don't know. He could be out there somewhere. And especially when you consider there have been numerous searches done as late as last year even. How could he literally disappear into thin air like that? We are talking clothing, shoes, hat, cell phone, most likely his wallet, his keys, his belt. There should be some sort of trace evidence out there somewhere. As I mentioned before, there is a theory out there that he was that he was taken by a wild animal but the fact is if this was the case all of his stuff should have been strewn about and something would have been found does this support that an opportunistic killer was involved quite possible but I have no idea I saw the wild animal theory and I thought that's interesting and it was specifically a wolf may have taken him so I looked up wolf attacks it's extremely rare to be attacked by wolves and killed by wolves. It could have happened, but it would be it would be about as likely as an opportunistic killer statistically speaking. I would think that a, if a wild animal was involved, it would have been after his death. Exactly. Yes, I do agree with that. But as I said, they're still out there searching. There's a Brendan Swanson website where they post details of each search. They get out there and they do look through the area quite frequently. 
even after this long. Yeah, I was reading the account of one searcher who's been out a couple of times, and I believe with his dogs, and he was talking about how dense some of that wood, the wooded area could be, and that they, I mean, they have to search detailed search of all that area to to truly consider it covered. So it's amazing these volunteers who go out there regularly to to look for Brandon and and other missing people to go and look where you think you're going to find a body. I mean, that takes a someone who really really cares and sees how important it is to bring these people home to their families for a proper burial. These people amaze me. So we will finish off with our usual housekeeping. Please remember to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast app. We have a website, insightpod.com, where you can listen to all our episodes and read and listen to some true crime short articles. On our website are also links to our Patreon account for an ongoing monthly donation, PayPal for a one-off donation and to our merchandise shops. We are on Facebook, like the page and join the group. We post our giveaways on Facebook. As Charlie said, the March 1 will be up there shortly. So if you want to be like the lovely Jessica and be the lucky winner of the next giveaway, come join us on Facebook and stay tuned. I'm on Instagram at InsightPod where you will see just a lot of photos of me drinking coffee. And Charlie is on Twitter at InsightfulPod. And we are both on the emails InsightfulPod at gmail.com. This week, thank you to the following amazing people for signing up to our Patreon. Erin R, Kyle M, Erin M and Kyle B. And thank you for the very kind five-star reviews goes to the fabulous podcast History Goes Bump, KS Across the Pond, Len138 and another one of my favourite, favourite podcasts right now. Thank you to Gillian of Court Junkie Podcast. And we will see you here next week. Bye.